So where can we find true peace? When we think about peace, um, we often might think about the absence of conflict. You might think about countries that are no longer at war or people that are no longer fighting. Um, but in God's word, peace is about much more than just the absence of conflict. In God's word, peace is also the idea of wholeness, of restoration, of things being returned to how they once were. The Hebrew word that you may have heard for that is shalom, which is the word for peace. This morning, I want us to think a little bit about peace. We live in a world that's longing for peace and for restoration, where war, conflict, and violence rages all over the globe. Some conflicts are famous, like the ones we are praying over, and there are so many more that we don't even think of, that we have not heard about, or if we're honest, we just don't care about. And all of us internally are also longing and waiting for peace. For many of us, the holidays are not a peaceful time. They're filled with grief and frustration and pain. We might long and wish um, that something would quiet all the noise inside our souls and give us peace. This morning, I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 9. It's going to be in the first seven verses. And I want us to look at how Jesus brings peace. I want you to see that this kind of peace and restoration is available to all of us. And our hope this Advent is that Jesus is truly the one who can bring us the peace that our world and that we are longing for. So if you're able, if you would stand with us for the reading of God's word in Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1 through verse 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, from the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And when his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end." on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let us pray. God, I ask that you would give us peace. We are all carrying something this morning. I ask that you would show us in your word what it really means that you are the Prince of Peace. Would you help us to feel it, to taste it, and to touch it this morning? I pray these things in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, our first point is that Jesus brings peace to the world. So Jesus brings peace to the world. The birth of Jesus is the announcement that God is bringing peace into this world. And the peace that Jesus is bringing is one that we desperately hoped for. 
something that the nations hoped for. It's something that Israel hoped for. They hoped to live in times of peace and prosperity instead of times when they were ravaged by war. Instead of a time where they had to worry about their children being drafted into service. Instead of a time where you have to wonder if you're going to have to flee your home because you might get bombed. Our hope and what Jesus is, is he came to bring an end to all war, to all conflict, and to bring peace. And Israel hoped that their nation would experience this peace for themselves. It's a peace that they hadn't felt for a very long time. Even when they were an independent nation. With their own kings, many of those kings would spend most of their time at war or under the threat of war. But their hope was that when the Messiah would come, maybe finally they could have peace that lasted. Verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who... For her who was in anguish in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is the prophecy of the future of what God is going to do. Currently, Israel's in anguish and in gloom. Things aren't going well. You could say that today, and it was true in Isaiah's day as well. The prophet wants to remind them of the former times. The names here that it mentions, those are two of the twelve tribes of Israel. The two tribes that are most in the north. And in this time, they haven't been a part of Israel in a very long, long time because they were conquered and taken by other nations. This is part of why Israel's in anguish. Their nation's been split apart. Their land has been stolen. Their people are slaughtered. And this happened because God allowed it because of their disobedience. The condition for Israel to be in the land has always been obedience to God. And whenever they fail to obey God, when they fail to obey God's commandments, submit to the scriptures and the prophets, they're exiled and they're taken away. And the only way they're allowed to righteously return is if they repent. So their loss of land here, it's not just a problem of national pride, it's also spiritually shameful. It reminds them of their failures and of their sin. But the prophet Isaiah says, this is not going to be like the former times. It's not going to be like the old days when you were in anguish and gloom because new days are coming. But the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. Starting to talk about the latter days, the times that are coming in the future. And you may notice that kind of throughout this chapter, the, the tense of the verbs might be a little different than you expect. Um, he doesn't say the Messiah will be born or the light is going to shine. He's describing it as if it's already happened already. And this is why he can say, or why he says things like, God has made glorious. The children, people have seen a great light. For us, a child is born. Okay, now I'm not going to get into all the technical, see, the technicalities, the intricacies of how Hebrew and its verb tenses work. Maybe there might be a handful of you that really wish that I would do that. Um, sorry, I'm not going to. Because um, you don't really necessarily need to understand all of that in order to understand what Isaiah is doing. Um, what you need to just know is that this is prophetic speech. God and Isaiah are telling you what is going to happen. And when God and when his prophets explain what will happen in the future, it's as if it's already been done. You can talk about it in the past tense because God's already accomplished it. Presence trying to just catch up to what God's already decreed. So this is why Isaiah, throughout the rest of the chapter, he's going to talk about the future promises of the Messiah as if it hasn't or has already happened. Not because he thinks the Messiah has already come or already been born yet, but because he trusts in God's promise and the prophetic declaration. And so he's telling us that while Israel might be torn apart now, 
while they might not be experiencing peace, they might be in gloom, they might be in anguish, in the days to come, it will be glorious. In the day when the Messiah comes, he will bring peace far beyond their land. That peace is going to go over the Jordan River on their border. And he uses, even uses a unique phrase, the Galilee of the nations. He's trying to show that the peace of the Messiah is going to extend to the entire world over every ocean, not just in their own borders. Verse 2, he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Again, this is describing what it will be like when Jesus comes. It will be like a massive light going off in the darkness. It would be like if someone was trapped deep down in a cave underground in the pitch black, and then all of a sudden, light broke through and showed them the way out. And this light that will shine is going to be so bright that even those who are far, far away will see it shine. Even those who live in lands covered by the darkness of sin and Satan will see the light. It's already happened, didn't it? We've sang about it a lot this morning. Of the wise men from lands far off into the east who saw a bright star literally shining in the sky. And even though they were very far away, the light of Jesus shone and they wanted to come and to see the Messiah. But this isn't just about that star shining then. It is about how the birth of Jesus and the light that his birth brings into a very dark world. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. So what will the peace of Jesus look like? It's going to be a peace that brings prosperity. So it's usually only when a nation is at peace that it can grow freely. So he says the nation is going to multiply. The population is going to keep increasing because no more of their young men are going off to be killed at war. No more young women being taken as spoils. And it's not just the physical prosperity that Jesus will bring, but it is also he will bring joy. People are no longer going to be filled with gloom. Won't walk around with their heads down low, but they will get to be filled with joy and with gladness. Have the kind of joy as at a harvest like the joy that a farmer might have. And you only have joy at the harvest if it's a good harvest. If it's a bad harvest, you're usually not very joyful. So when you go to finally collect the crops, and they're a lot bigger than you imagined, they produced far more ears of corn than you thought that it might have. A good harvest means the future looks bright. You're provided for. The next year will be a good one. It's the kind of joy also that people might have after dividing the spoil. They picture the joy that children have after coming back from trick-or-treating on Halloween and they dump all their candy on the floor to look at their spoils. It's a picture of the joy that Jesus will bring. And four, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, one of the only ways that we can have peace in our world is when evil is defeated. You can't have peace between nations if one nation is enslaving another. Can't have peace between peoples when one people is bombing another. And so what Jesus says here is he will bring peace by breaking the power of those who bring war. That the yoke, the staff, the rod, they'll all be broken. And all of those there are really meant to be symbols of oppression, of conquering. When Jesus, God says he's going to break and destroy them, he's talking about ruining the power of oppressive and sinful nations to make a war against his people and against anyone. 
But it's similar, it would, it would be kind of like if you told a slave that one day you will break the master's rip, whip, and rot. Slave master might not be happy about it, but the slave would see, ah, oh, my deliverance is coming. One day Jesus will defeat evil's power. All of the things and all of the tools that it has in its possession that it might use, even things that you might say like a staff, well, you could use that for good, but evil isn't. God will take all of it from them and he will break it. And their hold and their power over the world will be finished. And he says he'll do this as on the day of Midian. You might remember that day. You can, we, you can read about it in Judges chapter 6 and 7. It's the story of Gideon. It's a nation that was oppressing Israel in that time because of their sin. For seven years, Midian was ruthlessly beating down on Israel. Um, every single time they had a harvest, Midian would come and steal it. That's why Gideon was hiding when he was beating the grain. Remember, because he didn't want anyone to come and take it. Every time that they had cattle or any kind of prosperity, any small measure of peace, Midian would come and would ruin it all. People hid in caves because they dared not show their face outside. And they had so little because of what Midian did that their people were starving and dying. But God sent and he chose Gideon to save his people. And even though Gideon on that final day only had 300 men with him, he defeated the whole army of the Midianites who were too big to be counted. They defeated him without even having to lift their swords because God did all the work for them. They just shouted and shook their lanterns and their pots. Likewise, it will be like that one day when Jesus comes again. The enemy will be there. More than can be counted, but we won't have to lift a finger. God will take care of it all. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It gives the image of the enemy army's stuff just being put in a pile and burned. All of those soldiers, all of those who would um, rebel against God, who would try to fight him, who would destroy others, all of their stuff, their armor, the things that make them seem um, so fierce and strong, their power, all their stuff just gets taken by Jesus and it's cleansed in blood because God won. Um, and then they just use it to keep warm during the winter and burn it. And this here, why does it say that it's um, burning them as fuel for the fire? It's meant to make clear that what Jesus will do when he brings peace in this way is just. Okay, what most empires do when you conquer people, right, is, well, I mean, you conquer them because you want what they have. So you take their stuff. It's one of the hallmarks of having an empire. It's part of what fuels, right, modern versions of it, of colonialism. It's what the Romans did when they brought their Roman peace that they were very proud of. Their prosperity and their peace that they offered the world that came after they slaughtered everybody. They took their land and they took all their things. And they said, okay, now you can have peace. Aren't you so happy we brought it to you? Congratulations. It's even the way modern countries might act if they invade or attack one another because they want control over land or resources. But Jesus' peace is not like that peace. It's not like the Romans' peace. The peace of Jesus is not accomplished the way that other empires would accomplish it. Jesus doesn't destroy for gain because he needs stuff. Destroys for justice because it's right. The burning, the burning of this, it's what Israel was often supposed to do, right? When they entered into the promised land and they conquered the nations and the people there to show that they weren't just there to take things to get rich. They were commanding, okay, take everything you get, all the gold, all the stuff, and burn it. It was supposed to show we're not doing this to take people's things. We're doing this because it's right and just, and this is what God's commanded. 
And so Jesus will conquer the wicked, not because he wants their oil, but he's going to do it because it's right. And he will break the rod and the staff as he did at Midian. And when he does so, he will do it to bring true and lasting peace in our world. And that peace can only come when those who would ruin it, those who would violate it, are converted to Jesus or are conquered. But this is our hope this Advent, is that one day Jesus really will bring true peace into our world. Because we don't have it. And we need it. That's our first point. Our second point is that Jesus brings peace with God. Jesus brings peace with God. Um, Jesus is the only one who can really bring us peace. Um, not just because no one else can bring true peace into our world, but because nobody else can give us peace with God. Ever since the Garden of Eden, there's a problem between us and God. Humanity is troubled and we are trapped in our sins. We are dead in our sins. It puts a barrier between us and God. Our relationship with God is not as it should be. And we can't make it right. We can't wash ourselves clean. We can't fix what we have broken. We can't kill enough sheep and goats to make it right. Why is Jesus the only one who's capable of doing this? this is what, and it's because of who he is. These next two verses in 6 and 7, they tell us not just who the, what the Messiah will do, but they remind us of who the Messiah is. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Some of those beautiful verses in Isaiah might be really familiar to you. We've read them several times already this morning. We could read it more, I think, and we might not get sick of it. Uh, we usually read them around this time of year, and it's good that we do because they remind us of our hope for peace. Again, it's prophetic speech. Isaiah's talking as if Jesus is already born, but he is the child who will be born. He was the son who was given to humanity as our hope. And he came not just descending from the clouds, fully formed, but he came and was willing to be born as a baby in a manger, to be truly human. It tells us the government will be on his shoulders. It means he's in charge. All of the power, all of the authority of government's on him. He's the one who gets to make all the decisions. He's the one to blame if anything goes wrong, which it won't when he's in charge, because his shoulders can hold it. They can take care of it. He can bear the weight of the responsibility because he's Jesus. And we can look at all of his names for a personal wonderful counselor. Now, wonderful here, it doesn't just mean he's awesome, like we might say about things. Oh, that was just wonderful. Um, it means he's like the king of wonders. He's working miracles. Wonder, it's events and things that cannot be explained except by the power of God. And Jesus worked so many miracles and so many wonders. We've been reading them as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Most of the stories are about the miracles that Jesus did the people who are healed, the dead that were brought back to life. So he's the wonderful, merrill-working counselor. And when you hear counselor, um, don't picture like a school counselor or something like a therapist, okay? Isaiah didn't know what those were, so I don't think that's what he meant. It means that Jesus is going to have miraculous wisdom. And that he would know the right decision to make, which Jesus always did. People were constantly amazed by his teaching and his insight. Even 2,000 years later, we gather around here because we want to hear... What did Jesus say? It still amazes us. It still captures our imagination. It's also the mighty God. 
Because Jesus is filled with all of the power of God. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is not just a fancy angel. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He is the mighty God who created everyone and everything. And he's the everlasting father. Everlasting father it means that um, God has been Jesus' father forever. If you've been coming to the discipleship class and following along as best you can um, with the mysteries of the Trinity, this is one of the things that we've talked about. Right? He is what we would call the eternally begotten son. I wonder why we're using all those big words. It's because we're trying to say Jesus was not made. He has always existed, and God has always been his Father, and he always has been the Son. And it's because Jesus is God. He is the Son of God, and he is the only one who can help us find peace with God. He is the only one who can repair the relationship that was fractured. He is the only one who is qualified to be our high priest and to be our mediator because of who his Father is and because of who he is. He's the everlasting Father, and he is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who can bring us true and lasting peace. It is in his name. Now, all of these titles, um, they're things that could only be lived up to by Jesus. Only the God-man could do this. Okay, earthly kings love to give themselves big titles. Love to just put one after another of all the things that they have conquered, all the things they are. Um, most of them aren't true. They're aspirational. They're only testimonies, their own arrogance and foolishness. But these titles, these are things that Jesus can do. Things that Jesus is. Jesus truly is wonderful. Jesus truly is the mighty God. Jesus is the everlasting Father. Jesus is the true Prince of Peace. And because of who he is, he can bring us peace with God. But what will this peace look like? In 7 it says, of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. Now, every nation on earth has had peace at some point in time. Okay, maybe it was just a few short years or a few short days or maybe even just a couple minutes. Okay, but peace and prosperity that other nations have or experience, it doesn't last. But with Jesus, his peace will never end. There will be no end to it. It won't stop. It won't run out. There won't be a time where people look back and say, oh, do you remember the good old days when Jesus first came? Those were really nice. I wish it was more like that. Oh, do you remember what happened before that recession or the pandemic or that war? Now, when Jesus comes and when he reigns, he brings us peace and that's it. That peace will just go on and on and on and on and on for all time. And his government will continue without end. Okay, some of us in here might be big government people. Some of us here might be small government people. Some of you might just read this and it says Jesus' government will get bigger and bigger. And it makes you twitch. You don't like it. Okay, we can disagree on the size of government. That's fine. Okay, when Jesus comes, there's no more time for disagreement. doesn't really matter what you think. Um, his government is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're all going to be big government people because Jesus is in charge. And it's his. And this will be a good thing. This will be what brings us peace and hope. And it's going to be better than you could possibly imagine. Tells us on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and withhold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, we see Jesus will reign forever. He will sit on King David's throne because he is the true Messiah and the kingdom of God will be established. 
And Jesus will rule with righteousness and justice forever and ever. And God is looking and God is longing and Jesus is waiting to accomplish this. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts, it means his passion, his excitement, his dedication to bring this peace and to bring his government into the world. Again, all of this is because of who Jesus is. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the everlasting God. And because he is these things, now he can give us peace with God. Israel only got a foreshadow and a glimpse of this stuff. Their expectation when they read these was just a literal and a physical peace and restoration in the world. But when Jesus came, the first time he came in his advent, he didn't come to bring peace on the world. He came as to bring peace with God. Romans um, 5.1 is one of the, the best places that explains the peace that Jesus brings. There's many other scriptures that point to it as well. We don't have time to read all of them. It would be worth doing in your own to just study. Um, all the times peace with God is mentioned. But here it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came on earth to die on the cross to give us peace. He died in our place. He bore our sins. His death redeemed us. It purchased us our ransom. His death, it defeated sin. His death justifies us. No longer are we rebellious sinners who have ran from God, but it makes us righteous, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And now our faith with him, Jesus gives us peace with God. Not just peace in the sense that, oh good, now God's not mad at me anymore. But peace in the sense that now our relationship with God can be restored to what it always should have been. Just as Adam and Eve got to once walk in the garden in the cool of the day with God, through Jesus Christ we get to be restored into that right relationship with Him. But this peace is something that can only come through Jesus Christ, the promised Son who was born of a virgin to give us peace. So Jesus brings peace to the world. He brings peace with God. Our last point here, number three, so we need to embrace Jesus' peace. We need to embrace Jesus' peace. He has brought peace into the world. He's bringing his peace. And this peace, it's available to all of us. Um, Jesus brought his peace into the world through his life, his death, and his resurrection. But the peace that Jesus brings, it didn't just automatically come to everybody. Okay, we have to receive it in faith. We have to accept that Jesus really is our king. We have to believe that he truly is the Prince of Peace. We have to put our trust in him that he really is worth following, that he is worth giving our lives to. We have to believe that he really is God, that he really did come and he really did die for all of us. All of those are they're just another way of saying we've got to embrace Jesus. If you want to experience and you want to receive the peace of Jesus, then you have to follow Jesus. You've got to believe Jesus. You've got to put your trust in Jesus. Some of you may have not experienced the peace of Jesus because you're not following him. You haven't put your faith in him, and I want to invite you to do so. I'm going to tell you and remind you, the peace that Jesus offers, it's here at your fingertips, and you can have it. All you've got to do is follow Jesus. There's not a magical, special prayer you have to pray. There's not a government form to fill out. You just need to put your trust in him and follow him in faith. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, who have experienced the peace that 
with God that Jesus brings, we also need to experience the peace that Jesus brings and offers us in this life. There's a number of verses that speak to this. One of my favorites is Philippians 4-7. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The context right before he tells us, you know, don't be anxious about anything, but pray and make your supplications known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Many of you may have heard me pray this verse or pray that God would give you peace that surpasses understanding. It's because I'm praying and holding on to this passage. Um, if we embrace the peace of Jesus, it means that we really can have peace in our souls, and we can have peace in our hearts even when it doesn't make any sense. It means that we can be calm and we can have inner peace with Jesus even when our personal life is falling apart. We can have peace that passes understanding even as we stand at the grave of a loved one. We can have peace that passes understanding even when we're facing the cancer diagnosis from the doctor. We can have peace that passes understanding even when you lose your job and you don't know if you're going to be able to find another one. The peace that Jesus offers, it does not come from good breathing techniques. The peace that Jesus offers doesn't come from just having a strong fortitude. The peace of Jesus, it comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. And if we ask for it, He'll give it to us. So instead of trying to Make it and white-knuckle it and fight through things on our own and feel like you're drowning. Some of us just need to give up and turn to Jesus and ask that he'd give us his peace. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can pray to him. You can seek him out. You can experience this peace. This peace is not just for pastors. It's not just for the super spiritual. It is for the lowly. It is for the weak. It is for the biblically illiterate who couldn't find Philippians if it hit him in the face. You don't have to. Make your prayers and supplications known to Jesus. And the peace of God passes all understanding. will guard you, your hearts and your minds. Jesus' peace is here for you, even if your heart is barely hanging on. So don't be troubled, church. As we leave these walls, um, as we go back into our lives, I want us to embrace the peace that Jesus offers. Because one day, Jesus will bring the fullness of his peace. When he returns, then it's going to be really easy because we will all just get to experience 100% of the peace of Jesus 100% of the time everywhere. But for now, we just get a little bit of a taste. But you can feel that peace, and we can taste that peace, and we can have it even as the world falls around, falls apart around you. Embrace Jesus and embrace his peace. Where we've been this morning, we've seen Jesus is bringing peace to the world. Jesus brings peace with God, and we need to embrace Jesus' peace. Um, the end of our benediction each week is part of the dismissal. I usually tell you, go in peace. Okay, I'm not um, just trying to be a fancy you know, Christian way of saying, okay, go home now. Um, I want to remind us to go into the world filled with the peace of Jesus. I want to send us back out to our lives as people who have embraced the peace of Jesus, who are now going to be a part of the expanding of his peace to the world without end. Let me pray for us and we're going to
transition to a time of communion. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to embrace your peace. Lord, there are some times um, that I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so distracted, I can be so anxious um, that I don't even want to stop and ask for you to give me peace, or I don't think of it. Lord, I know that all of us here need your peace. Not just in a brief moment, um, once when things are really hard and then we're good, we'll handle it from here. Lord, we need your peace all the time. Would you help us to embrace your peace? Would you help us to look not for the peace that the world offers, but for the peace that you offer? And Lord, we ask that you would bring your peace into this world. That it would be on earth as it is in heaven. And we long and we wait for the day when you will return again and your peace will never end. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. This benediction from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.